If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Recently, I launched a new occasional series on this podcast called Worldviews. I've got maybe up to a dozen of them in mind, and I hope that over the next year I'll drop these episodes into the regular schedule in between the interviews, church chats with Ed, topical explorations, book and movie reviews, and a few other things that might be in the pipeline. So just look or search for episodes with worldviews in the title in the podcast library. Now, in the first installment, which was episode 16, we covered Marxism. Today, we're going to look at something called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, that's a mouthful of big words, but I think that you're going to recognize it when I describe it. In fact, about a year or so ago, I gave a lecture about this topic to a group, and a number of folks came up to me afterwards and said, that perfectly described how my kids view the world. Let me know by sending me an email or posting a message on Facebook, if you feel the same after you listen to this episode. As we study worldviews in this series, we're going to encounter many that are openly hostile to Catholic Christianity. And make no mistake, there are plenty of people who hold those worldviews and are hostile to Christianity. But that doesn't explain everyone's views. Because in our culture, we are surrounded by plenty of folks who aren't necessarily hostile as much as they are, well, let's just say, agreeably apathetic. They don't hate churches, they just don't go to them. They don't hate the Bible, they just never read it, and it has little to no influence on their beliefs or how they live their life. They don't reject Jesus or the gospel, they just don't respond to him or it. And what's painful for so many of us is that many of these folks are our loved ones, including our own children. When it comes to our kids, many of us who are practicing Christians tried to do all the right things to raise them in the faith. We took them to church on Sundays, and we taught them to sit still, to be respectful, and to pay attention. We bought them children's Bibles and Veggie Tales videos. We took them to Sunday school and sent them to church camp or vacation Bible school in the summer. We dropped them off at youth groups and sent them on mission trips to Guatemala. Our churches built youth rooms and skateboard ramps in the church parking lot. We sent them to Christian colleges. We did everything that we could think of. And now? Well, now they're 30 or 40 years old and they just, well, they just don't go to church. 
When we work up the courage to ask, they say, yeah, well, they believe in God. They consider themselves to be Christians, and they'll even come with us to Christmas and Easter services. But none of it is really stuck. They aren't against the faith. They just don't practice it. And when we look around, we see a whole lot of Americans, not just young people, that share their benign apathy. They believe in God. They recognize the value of the spiritual life. And they have some moral codes and try to do more right than wrong. But their understanding of God doesn't quite match the biblical historic Christian view. Their vision of the spiritual life is fuzzy and sentimental. And while they have all sorts of moral views, those views don't necessarily align with the historic biblical moral code. It's hard to say that they have a different faith. It's more like that they process religion through a different lens than historic biblical Christianity. The broad shapes of God, spirituality, and morality are still visible through that lens, but they're all somehow different, diffused, distorted, redefined. You see, that's exactly how worldviews work. Worldviews are the conceptual frameworks through which we define and order our values and beliefs, including our religion. So, what is this particular worldview that accepts the broad outlines of Christianity, while at the same time redefining all the details to produce a sort of low-energy apathy toward the specifics of the faith? Well. 20 years ago, someone actually gave this worldview a name. In the early 2000s, sociologists Christian Smith and Melina Lundquist Denton interviewed 3,000 American teenagers in a research project called the National Study of Youth and Religion. They published their findings in the 2005 book, Soul Searching, the religious and spiritual lives of American teenagers. Now, bear in mind that the teenagers that they interviewed in 2005 are now in their late 20s or mid to late 30s, exactly the generation that we are depending upon to raise the next generation of children, to fill our churches, and to step into positions of leadership in the church. What Smith and Denton discovered was that these people had a fundamentally different worldview from historic biblical Christianity, although it wasn't necessarily hostile to the traditional faith in the way that, say, Marxism is. And it wasn't a heresy, necessarily. There really wasn't a word for what they were hearing, so they coined a new term to describe it. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, those are three pretty big words, and they're all smooshed together to make a fancy term. So let's define each of them one by one, and then try to put it all together to form some understanding of this worldview that so many Americans see the world through. But I think it'll make more sense if we define the terms in reverse order. So first, deism. 
Now, deism is the belief that there is a God of some sort, perhaps a spiritual force, but that he or she or it is somewhat distant from the universe and the day-to-day grind of the world. For example, deism might say that God, whatever God is, may have set the universe in motion or may have been there with the universe all along, but that after pushing the start button, the universe has more or less progressed along since then through natural evolutionary processes. The he, she, it, God isn't particularly involved in the nitty gritty of daily life unless you need him or her or it to help you out. Smith and Denton wrote that moralistic therapeutic deism believes in, quote, a particular kind of God, one who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in one's affairs, especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved, unquote. Let me translate that last sentence. For believers in moralistic therapeutic deism, God stays out of your business. I once had someone, actually a staff person at a church, tell me that God has nothing to do with what goes on in her bedroom. That's outside God's scope. According to her, God doesn't care or has no jurisdiction to intrude on a person's personal values or rights. According to her, God is there for the, for the big stuff, for creating galaxies and seeding life on planets, for climate change and racism, stuff like that. But what you do with your body or your money or your time is pretty much your business. And he, she, it has no opinion and is basically hands off. These kinds of deists don't believe that any single religion captures or contains the truth about God. For them, all religions are true and all are saying basically the same thing, just in different ways. There's this old metaphor they like to use in which these three blind men encounter an elephant and try to figure out what it is. So one blind man grabs the leg and says, it's a tree. Another blind man puts his palms on the elephant's side and says, it's a wall. And the third blind man grabs the trunk and says, no, no, it's a snake. And the point of this story is supposedly that none of them is wrong. They're all correct, for the elephant is like a tree and a wall and a snake. And the lesson that we're supposed to learn from this story is that religions are like the blind men, each grasping some aspect of God. And so all religions are right. Now, I'm sorry if this offends anyone, but I've been hearing this dumb story since I was in college, and it irritated me then, and it still does. The story is dumb because the point is dumb. The three blind men weren't all right. They were all wrong. It wasn't a tree or a wall or a snake. It was an elephant. No serious believer in any major religion believes that all the religions can be right. Either Jesus was God, the third person of the Trinity incarnate, 
or he wasn't. Either Muhammad was the last and greatest prophet of a non-Trinitarian God, or he wasn't. Either the universe itself is alive with many expressions of the Godhead in a dance of creation and destruction and reincarnation, as the Hindus believe, or it isn't. Those can all be wrong, but they can't all be true. You see, when you believe in everything in a general way, you really believe in nothing in particular. For moral therapeutic deists, God is nothing but a, a concept, something that you define on the fly. He, she, it is whatever you need he, she, or it to be at the moment, and that you pull out of your pocket as needed, and then stuff back in when it's not. Way back in 1989, the alternative synth rock band Depeche Mode had a hit song called Personal Jesus. And that's what he is within this worldview, a personalized, customized Jesus that suits your particular tastes and meets your particular needs on your terms, on your timetable. And that brings us to the middle word in the term moralistic therapeutic deism. Therapeutic. This worldview is therapeutically oriented. It assumes that the ultimate goal in life, and for religion, is to improve your mental and emotional health. In other words, if your religious beliefs and practices make you happier and healthier, then they're helpful. But if they make you unhappy, or if they make you discontent with the state of your life, or worse, if they make you feel guilty or bad about yourself, then they're unhelpful and they're unhealthy. According to moral therapeutic deists, spirituality should bring you joy and contentment, not as a byproduct of knowing and serving God, but as an end in its own right. You don't so much pursue God because it's the right thing to do and then find happiness as a result. You pursue happiness and God is the means to that end. If God and religion makes you happy, great. If not, drop it, or he or she, because it's by definition unhealthy. Now, there's an important exception to this rule. Your religion is fine if it makes you happy, but not if it makes others unhappy. If your belief system makes others feel bad about themselves, then your belief system is not nice. And above all, we are to be nice. The yardstick questions are not what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. Instead, the measure of all things is what is nice. In fact, that question is the key to the others. What is truth, goodness, and beauty? Niceness. Whatever is nice or universally agreed to as nice is true and good and beautiful. Now, let me just make an aside here, although it's not the main point. One of the consequences of this approach is that it gives a veto vote on whatever is true to everyone around you. So, if you believe something that someone else feels is not nice to them, not sufficiently affirming of their happiness, their beliefs, their pursuit of bliss, then your view cannot be true because it's mean. And you can't be mean 
no one can ever be wrong if their beliefs are making them happy. So, there is a mutually agreed to standard set at the lowest common denominator. As long as everyone is happy about everyone else's beliefs, then we're all being nice to each other and no one's being mean. And that's the measure of what's true and good. So, back to you. In this worldview, if the religious beliefs or practices that you were raised with don't contribute to your happiness and sense of fulfillment, then your religious views are unhelpful and pointless. If they make you feel bad about yourself, for example, if the beliefs of your religion would suggest that your lifestyle or moral choices are sinful, then they're obviously wrong beliefs and should be avoided. Back to those sociologists Smith and Denton. In their book describing moralistic therapeutic deism, they pointed out that, quote, the deism here is revised from its classical 18th century version by the therapeutic qualifier, making the distant gods selectively available for taking care of needs. It views God as something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. Unquote. You see, this God isn't really interested in the details of whatever it is that makes you happy, self-fulfilled, self-actualized. Just as long as whatever it is works for you and doesn't hassle or criticize or make anyone else uncomfortable about themselves. You see, the big she, he, it in the sky is here to help, not to judge. So, that explains the terms deism and therapeutic. But what about moralistic? Where does that fit in? Well it would seem like morality would contradict the first two points. If God is a sort of distant but warm and affirming force who wants your happiness but doesn't judge you for whatever makes you happy, where does moralism fit in? Well, what Smith and Denton found when they studied these teenagers in the early 2000s is that many, or perhaps most, are extremely moralistic. They have lots and lots of opinions, sometimes very strong opinions, about moral behaviors. But their moralism isn't based on orthodox Christian moral teachings. And there's really no coherent moral code corresponding to, say, natural law like in Catholicism or organized revealed truths like in most religions. Instead, this moralism is more of a disorganized grab bag of almost random ideas and contemporary fashionable cultural values. For example, they would agree that stealing or murder is bad, unless it's looting during a justified political riot. But the rest seem more like fashionable beliefs that are driven by social media. 
So in this worldview, God has nothing to say about sexuality, marriage, financial stewardship, worship, abortion, euthanasia, respect for elders, or most of the Ten Commandments. But this God has all sorts of views about climate change and healthy eating and organic food sources and the treatment of animals and recycling and race. Polluting the environment is bad. Plastic straws are bad. Being mean to animals or other people is bad. But sexual behavior or marriage have no moral dimensions attached to them other than consent and mutual satisfaction. What's interesting, if you think about it, is that the moralism of this worldview is all external, collective, and directed at other people. It's rarely self-reflective and almost never self-convicting. It's all about societal issues, the moral righteousness of this group of people or that class of behaviors. And it all has a sort of political dimension to it. It doesn't come from holy books like the Bible or the Quran. It comes from social media. Its preachers are not prophets or pastors, they're celebrities. Its pulpit is Twitter or Instagram or TikTok. For the individual, morality and religion in general is just a means to the end of being happy and self-fulfilled. As one teenager they interviewed for the book put it, quote, Morals are good if they're healthy for society. Like Christianity, which is all I know, the values you get from like the Ten Commandments. I think like every religion is important in its own respect. You know, if you're Muslim, then Islam is the way for you. If you're Jewish, well, that's great too. If you're Christian, well, good for you. It's just whatever makes you feel good about you. Unquote. So. Let's put all three of these together. I think that the essence of moralistic therapeutic deism is captured by a phrase that is so common that it's almost an anthem or a slogan or the tagline for this worldview. It's this. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm sure you've heard this. People say it proudly, unironically, as if it made sense. Needless to say, I don't think it even makes sense, which is why I'll be doing a future podcast episode called I'm Religious Because I'm Spiritual. Because I think that religion is the actual shape, the practical belief and application and actions that arise from your spirituality. To say that you're spiritual but not religious is, to my mind, To announce that your spirituality is just a a gaseous sentimentality that you never really act upon in the real world. While moralistic therapeutic deism has no organized theology, Smith and Denton described in their book five core beliefs that emerged from their 3,000 interviews. And I'm quoting these five directly from their book. Number one. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Four, 
God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. Now, Smith and Denton's book points out that Barack Obama was, and maybe still is, a powerful cultural icon for this movement. For most of the millennial generation, he was the first president that they ever voted for. Obama almost perfectly captured and reflected back to them the theological message of moralistic therapeutic deism. Setting aside politics, Obama is a great ambassador for this worldview. In 2004, before he was elected president, Obama gave an interview to Kathleen Falsani of the Chicago Sun-Times. Again, politics aside, this interview is fascinating because it took place during the same period that Smith and Denton were interviewing those 3,000 American teenagers. Obama perfectly articulated the cultural zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. In the interview, he says that he believes there are many paths to God. His answers on heaven and sin, though, have drawn the most discussion. So I'm going to quote that portion of the interview. The interviewer, Falsani, Kathleen Falsani, asks Obama, do you believe in heaven? And Obama responds, do I believe in the harps and the clouds and the wings? And Falsani says, well, a place spiritually that you go after you die. And Obama answers, what I believe is that if I live my life as well as I can, that I will be rewarded. I don't presume to have knowledge of what happens after I die. But I feel very strongly that whether the reward is in the here and now or in the hereafter, the aligning of myself to my faith and my values is a good thing. When I tuck in my daughters at night and feel like I've been a good father to them, and I see that I'm transferring values that I got from my mother, and that they're kind people and they're honest people, that they're curious people, well, that's a little piece of heaven. Falsani asks, do you believe in sin? Obama says, yes. Falsani asks, what is sin? Obama answers, being out of alignment with my values. Falsani asks, what happens if you have sin in your life? Obama answers, I think that it's the same thing as the question about heaven. In the same way that if I'm true to myself and my faith, that is its own reward, when I'm not true to it, it's its own punishment. Unquote. What's such an interesting contrast here is that the Orthodox Christian answer to the question, what is sin, and for that matter, the Orthodox Jewish or Muslim answer, would be not being out of alignment with my own values, but being out of alignment with God's values. My point here isn't to bash Obama as a politician. Again, regardless of politics, in the early and mid-2000s, he was a powerful cultural influence, partly because he was such a perfect icon and ambassador for the generation that was just coming out of high school and the moralistic therapeutic deism that framed their religious worldview. So, how did we get here? How did moralistic therapeutic deism become such a prevalent worldview in the early 21st century? 
Well, I believe that to some degree, it was the baby boomers that created this problem. They sowed the wind and their children are inheriting the whirlwind with their own grandchildren. The substitution of the biblical concept of sin for behavioral moralism, making the goal of life self-actualization and personal fulfillment, and framing the church as a consumer-driven organization trying to attract customers by affirming their desires. The dumbing down of theology, the emphasis of the imminence of God over his transcendence, etc. All of this led to this. The belief that the church exists to facilitate God helping people to be happy and to affirm their truth. Rather than being a place where people come to discover the truth and encounter God as he is and desires to be known. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, when this generation was children, we doubled down on this approach. And the more that we did, the more it reinforced the theological message that we were sending. We offered a content-free Christianity, churches with an empty message. And now we have empty churches. Why would anyone bother to come? So, how do we turn all this around? Well, not by doing more of the same. The solution today is the same as it ever was. As St. Paul was awaiting his martyrdom in the Mamertine prison in the Roman Forum, he wrote his second letter to his protege, Timothy. And Paul's instructions to Timothy in 64 AD are just as relevant in 2022 AD. And so, we'll end with 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. Thank you for listening. Considering Catholicism is produced by One Whirling Adventure, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a simple mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. We depend completely on your generous donations. Learn more and consider supporting our ministry by visiting oneworlingadventure.org.